The fourth lesson is from the book of Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. The word of the Lord. One of the things that is true about any group of this size of human beings is that we all have different issues, different struggles, different reasons for being here. We have different responses to the truth or the untruth of what Christmas actually points to. We have different assessments of what is real about life and where ultimate reality is to be found where meaning is to be found. But the thing that is true about all of us is that we're all looking for it, that we're all looking for a purpose. In fact, we're all living by a purpose. It may not be an, an inspected or reflected upon purpose, but we all have a purpose. And we see in the Psalms people wrestling with these questions. The Psalms are the ancient prayer book of Judaism and of Christianity, And they're very ancient, some of the oldest writings that we have in the Bible, but they are constantly dealing with very modern questions. Is the world that we inhabit, is it it arbitrary? Is it indiscriminate? Is there a designer that's behind all of this? And what's the nature of that designer? And that despite the apparent chaos that I think we can all look around and, and identify, And the real suffering that we see is their coherence behind it all. Or at least is there a final remedy that will bring ultimate coherence? And of course, these questions really are fundamental and presuppose the questions of what am I doing here? Why do I exist? What is my purpose? And can I have one that extends beyond me? Can I have real meaning in my life? And Psalm 8 really gives us some very firm answers. They may be somewhat contrarian, and yes, they might be hard to believe, but they are answers nonetheless. And they're not sort of clinical anthropological answers in terms of what is humanity, and they're not merely apologetic that, in fact, there is a God, because that may not be all that hopeful. If He exists and is a tyrant, if God exists and is ambivalent, that's not good news. The news of God's existence may, in fact, be very bad news, as it was to many of the cultures that existed around the times that these psalms were written. 
These psalms you see were contrarian in that day as well because they presupposed and presented a God who was very unlike the mythologies that were being written at that time. The news of God wasn't bad news and that He was a tyrant, but it was very good news. And in fact, Psalm 8 gives us a very Christmassy answer. It gives us tidings of comfort and joy. It gives us good news that something has happened in the world, that something lies behind the world that gives us reason to be hopeful. And David, you see here, is experiencing that same mystical awe that you see these people experiencing as you read the birth narratives in the Gospels, that they're confronted with something and their only response is is awe. It is that it seems that they're standing on holy ground. There's something incredible going on. David, the psalmist, says, what is it about us? What is it about me, about humanity? Question one, and what is it about you, God? What's in your nature that causes you to care for me, to care for us, to be mindful of us? And we'll talk about that term in a minute because it's much more than just sort of casually thinking about someone. David here is making a proclamation in the form of a question. How is it true that God holds us in His memory? How is it true that God is intrigued by us, that He's enchanted by us, that He's loyal to us as humanity? And then he personalizes that, of course, for himself. How is it that God who made the planets and the stars. How is it that he is loyal to me? And most commentators will argue that Psalm 8 is a meditation on the creation narrative of Genesis 1 and 2 and part of 3, where humanity is given this regal status and that we are called to represent him and his intentions in the world. That is, we are called to have a purpose and we are given a purpose. I skipped a page, but that's just a preview for what's coming. So now we'll go back, and I'll tell you a little bit more about what was leading up to that. But David is giving us an enormous contrast to these ancient mythologies and how they describe God, because they generally conceive of creation as the result of this battle between the gods, where one emerges victorious, and they get to kind of create stuff and make the world as it is. And after they create, they're generally rather unimpressed with you and I. They're not so intrigued by humanity. In fact, they just want us to kind of keep it down. They're like parents. Can you guys keep it down in there? Can you turn the radio down? Turn the noise down. Trying to think in here. And in the biblical account, God doesn't wrestle, you see, with other gods and get the right to create but he wrestles with darkness itself. He tames chaos. And it tells us in verse 1 that he sets his glory above. That language is not the work of a general who's won a battle. It's not the 
the words that you would assign to someone who has become victorious over others, it's the words of an artist. It's the words of a contemplative. Look at this and how beautiful it is. And he sets his glory above it. For David, you see, creation is not just an is. It's not just something that has happened abstractly that we inhabit, but it's an artistic expression of truth and of ultimate reality. It's what God wants to tell us about himself. The, the medium is the message, as it's been said. He says, this is who I am. Look at creation and stand in awe. But the person who designed this and made this wants relationship with you. And that's the message. So instead of, hey, would you be quiet? Would you leave me alone? Would you keep the noise down? That's actually the reason for some of the, the flood, the stories in the ancient Near East about the flood. It's that we were too noisy. And the gods said, they won't keep it down, so we're going to flood them out. But instead of, can you kids keep it down? We are made a little lower than the heavenly beings, but crowned, crowned with glory and honor. Now, most of us in this room, just by virtue of growing up in the West, uh, that's been so influenced by Western Christianity, but certainly if you are a Christian here, we're still recovering from a very disturbing and distorted anthropology that comes out of the Middle Ages, and there's some uh, thematic contribution to that in the Reformation, and then is imported to the U.S. by Puritans primarily, where human beings, they aren't the joy and delight of God, that they're not these almost angelic beings made a little bit lower that God ponders and loves and is enchanted by. That's not the anthropology that you likely have of yourself and that you likely assume Christianity has because for the longest time we've been taught by the church as it exists in the modern West that you're not that, but in fact you're miscreants. You're so sinfully perverse that the best description of you is that you're a worm and that God can't stand the sight of you. Psalm 8 tells us something very different. Psalm 8 gives us this soaring, this lofty, this exquisitely beautiful anthropology, this description of you that is very different. And it says that the one who had the creativity and the power to make the stars and the planets and the moon and make everything work in concert like that created you with care, and with delight. And therefore, every life has immeasurable value. And what that means for us at Christmas personally, what that means is that no matter how small you feel this morning, no matter how unlovely you feel, no matter how forsaken you feel, no matter how sinful you feel or are, God considers you royalty, that He crowns you with honor, that you are crowned with His glory. 
And implied in that, implied in that is our purpose. Implied in that is a calling. David says in verse 6, you made them, that is us, humanity, rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea that swim the paths of the sea. And that's a very artistic way itself of saying, in a very ancient way, saying that not only do you share in His glory, but you are to share in His artistry. You are to share in His creative impulse, that in a way that is dissimilar and similar to God, you are to go about your days taming chaos, that you are to go about your day making things beautiful, finding things that are broken, and in any way that you can, redeeming, fixing them. You know, good leaders give not only the responsibility for something, hey, I would like you to carry out this task, but they also give the authority to do it. And therefore, the person doesn't have to keep coming back, constantly asking, how should I do this? Could I do this? But they actually empower the person that they give responsibility to. And that allows that person the freedom to mess things up. (laughs) It allows that person to fail. But it also empowers them to do something creative, to do something new, and to do something magical. Now, as we know, as we read the rest of Genesis, that mankind has this potential to do these magical things, these creative things. And we see that in our world today. We stand in awe of some of the creative impulses and the things that we make, but that we also have the authority to mess things up, to fail, to blow it. And we read the, really the rest of the Bible that that's actually what happens when God empowers us to go and to tame chaos, to make beauty, to follow Him in His creative way. And we start thinking, well, now that I have this authority, maybe I don't need to serve His interests, but I can serve my own. And it's in that moment, in that decision, that sort of a virus enters in. And the system is disturbed. And it's something like a computer virus And when you get a virus on your computer, things kind of slow down, don't they? It's not that you can't use your computer anymore. The underlying code is still there. When you power it on, it still powers up, but it might take a little bit longer. You can still write things and create stuff. But every single action takes a little bit more deliberateness. And then every now and then, what happens? You get the classic blue screen. I don't know if that happens anymore with Windows, but that used to be the the big complaint is that every now and then you would have the blue screen of death, that everything you'd been working on just comes crashing to the ground. And now that everyone's using Macs, we have to look out for viruses as well, and our, our computers crash. And that's what happens in creation is that the virus of our ego, of our self interest, it seeps in and it changes. It changes our efforts to beautify things. And every now and then we have a gigantic crash. And when we pray the Psalms, we're taking up language that recognizes that, that recognizes that our lives and all of the world is marked by brokenness and by degradation and by sin. 
and by evil and alienation. And yet, nonetheless, there's still this underlying code. There's this underlying symmetry. There's this underlying beauty that still exists. And yes, friends, an underlying direction that the world still has a purpose and that you still have a purpose, that there is a great designer, not just a creator, but an artist who has commissioned you to recapture that beauty, to rebuild that lost beauty of our own humanity and also of our world. And that in itself is grace because what God is doing is He is commissioning the very people that mess things up to rehab it, to rebuild, to reconstruct God's denuded world. Now, this all doesn't come, obviously, from Psalm 8, if you were listening as we read it, but it's rooted there. And it's implied in how David answers, who am I and who is God and what kind of God is He? Now, it's a question that we debate in our culture today that's hotly debated in the media and in in writing. Can we have morality? Can we have a purpose without a God, without a designer, without something beyond us? And many will argue, sure, why not? But the rationale, at least for me and maybe for you, doesn't seem to rise beyond that of a social contract, that we kind of get together and we figure out what will make our lives go reasonably well and reasonably painless if we can agree on what pain is and what suffering is. And then we make a social contract, and that's called morality, and we move through the world in that way. And maybe that appeals to you, but for me, it doesn't get beyond sort of what's right in front of me. It doesn't really illuminate my purpose It doesn't call me to appreciate beauty or to create beauty. It just is. It's just sort of a spreadsheet type of answer to how to minimize pain and suffering. But it also tells us that all of our aspirations for beyond, all of our aspirations for transcendent, our transcendent transcendence are mere illusions. People like John Gray and Britton and Steven Pinker if you've read him or them or seen them interviewed, they would agree with this. They would agree with me. I'm sure they're flattered by that. They come to the same conclusions that the existentialists did in the 50s and 60s. If you've read Sartre in your high school philosophy class or Camus, that if there is no God, there is no basis for any real purpose in the world. Why live for anything at all? Why promote human rights? Why promote equality? If there's no ultimate reality, why do you care? Because the cosmos sure doesn't care. Live by self-interest. And that's what these people who are agnostic or atheists are concluding. And I don't find that compelling as a purpose, but I find it compelling as a logical response to the reality that they are looking at. If humans are nothing more than a genetic accident that has produced a very highly destructive species, they call them homo rapians, if we're a collection of cells that happens to be self-aware, then do we have purpose? Do we have meaning? Is our sense of transcendence, is our sense of beauty, is it just culturally constructed 
Is it, a, is it an illusion? This, you see, is very honest. It's quite honest about the darkness and brokenness that we all inhabit. But it doesn't bring us any hope that there could be, that there has been an intrusion of light that has meaning. David, you see, says that we are the handiwork of God, the concern of God, the object of His fascination and His care, that that's what makes you, you. That's what allows you to get up on Christmas morning and know that there's something more than just the exchange of gifts, that the things that you feel about this season, this longing for transcendence, it actually connects to something. It actually points you beyond your life. You see, we see this no more, nowhere more clearly than Advent, than Christmas, because what we are told is that God doesn't just come to us with a message, here's how I want you to live. He doesn't just come to us, but He comes to be one of us. He comes to be one with us, to communicate that David's reflections do match ultimate reality, that God is exquisite in His care for humanity. The old King James Version translates the verse that we read earlier that I referred to, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him. I don't know why we can't read it easily and why we don't use that translation anymore, but sometimes it just brings something out, despite the kind of gender-specific language that doesn't communicate anymore that who God is talking about is all of us. There's something about that last part. What is it about me that thou visitest us? And we read in the birth narratives in the gospel about these amazing visits, right? Think about how are these stories told? It is, it, they are told in the story of visitation. The angel visits with Joseph and tells him the story of what's about to happen. The angel visits with Mary, and she responds with, okay, she has a purpose, you see, in this visitation. And the scared little girl, probably 14, says, I will bear this child, and I will bear the shame that my culture will give me because of this, because she's an unwed mother. Mary then visits with Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, and then John the Baptist's father, Elizabeth's husband, Zechariah, he is visited by the angel that tells him, too, what's about to happen, and he breaks into praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins through their tender mercy of our God, whereby, this is King James, by the way, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death that is all of us. That the reason that these visitations happen was to give light in the darkness and also to guide our feet, purpose, calling, meaning, 
to guide our feet in the way of peace. Jesus comes, you see, not as a general on a war horse who happens to have defeated all the other gods and gets the right to rule, but he comes as an artist. He comes as a baby. It's a beautiful picture. Whether you believe it, we can certainly see the artistry behind it. He comes as a baby, and instead of taking up power, he's overcome by power. He's born in a stall, born in poverty, on his way to a cross. And what Christmas tells us is that this all happened because God was mindful of you, that God was enchanted by you, that God remembers you, and that he visits you with salvation. Friends, there's dissonance between how we believe the world was created and how God intended it to be and how it is now. And we all have to answer that, by the way. Why? But it's in the way things ought to be, that's where we find our purpose. That's where we find our calling. When you experience the gospel taking root in your own life, when you hear Jesus saying that He will bring peace in the midst of your personal chaos, that He will bring healing in the midst of your cosmic brokenness. You can never be satisfied with the way things are, but you're always being compelled to pursue the way things ought to be, beginning with yourself, you see, beginning with asking God through the power of His gospel and through His community, through the Spirit, to change you, to rehab you so that you can be His healing presence out in the world. And that's your calling based upon this beautiful anthropology and this beautiful meditation of theology of who God is. So live out of that juxtaposition this Christmas season. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to believe this, and not only to believe it, but to live out of it, to do it. And Lord, I pray that as we contemplate coming to the table, that as we think of this as a means of grace, as a means of the way that you want to begin that work of rehab in our own lives, that we would be open to that. And maybe we, in this time, still trying to ask questions about what is ultimate reality? Are you real? Are you to be trusted? And I pray that we would open ourselves to that query and that we would allow ourselves to follow the truth wherever it may lead. And if we've already answered those questions, would you root the answers more deeply in the way that we live and the way that we love uh, those around us and the way that we love you? And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.